You're all I want. You're all I've ever needed. You're all I want. Help me know you are near. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, Well, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, the lawyer said, And who is my neighbor? Many of you probably recognize this text as the prelude to the parable of the Good Samaritan, a contextually appropriate message to preach during this time of a pandemic in America. But I want us to specifically focus today on this preamble, which began with the question, and who is my neighbor? This is perhaps the most thought-provoking question of our time, and especially in this age of the pandemic and police brutality. Who is my neighbor? It is a question that confronts us with the opportunity to reflect and to see the true condition of our hearts if we are willing to do it. So today, as we continue to see the protests all across the nation and even the world, and as we continue to also see the tragic effects of police brutality continually and the pain associated with both COVID-19 and COVID-45, I want to speak a message about being a neighbor, and I've therefore titled this message, The Man Next Door. Let us pray. Father, we have come to the preaching hour. We thank you, O Lord, for all that has been done and presented leading up to this point. Lord, we are truly grateful, even though we don't often show it. But Lord, we do know that it is in you that we move, live, and have our being. And so, Father, bread of life, we need to hear from you. So, Spirit of the living God, come now and descend upon this preacher. Fill him one more time, O God, with your Holy Spirit, that as I preach your word, your children hear you, and they know how to move and have their being in you. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit. We praise you now and honor you now. In Jesus' name, amen. The text introduces us to a lawyer who seeks to challenge Jesus by asking what he could do in order to inherit eternal life. By asking the question the way that he did gives the impression that he believed that he had an inherent ability or the capacity within himself to achieve or accomplish something as magnificent as eternal life. The question had two fundamental problems. The first centers on the activity of man. In other words, what shall I do? 
And the second centers on this issue and idea of an inheritance. Beginning with the first problem, this question by the lawyer implies that a created, natural, and finite being such as man has the ability to effect and impact his supernatural and infinite destiny by something that is within his control. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There is a tendency in all of us to believe that we are capable by our own strength and ability to control or to be in control of our lives, our environment, and our situations. Now, while this is true to some extent, the reality is that much of what we actually do in life results in accomplishments and outcomes that we did not expect. Case in point, all of my life growing up, I wanted to be the first black CEO of the phone company. Yet today, today, I'm a university professor, a chaplain at a medical center, a pastor in a phenomenal church called Allen Temple. And while I am happy about this, the point that I'm making is that my plan did not necessarily coincide with God's plan for me. You see, I can make all the plans that I want. I can devise and figure out what can I do to make my life whatever it is I see in my mind. But the reality is God is the one that knows the plans he has for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give us hope and a future. So, so if you and I have such little control over doing things that impact our natural lives, what makes you think you can do something that has an impact on your supernatural life? The second problem with the question by this lawyer centers on the word inheritance. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit to inherit means to be an heir with rights to do something or achieve something of value when the owner of that thing has been deceased. Now, I'm not sure if you see what the lawyer is really asking, so, so let me try and translate his question for you in everyday language. This is what the lawyer says. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What he really meant to say is, so-called teacher, because I'm such a good and perfect person, isn't God now obligated to give me what is due unto me? The lawyer's question was rhetorical, and I know this to be true because the Bible tells us that he stood up to test Jesus. So-called teacher, because I've been such a good and perfect Christian, because I've done everything that has been required of me in society and beyond, isn't God now obligated to give me what is due unto me? Lord, I have fed hungry. I have clothed the naked. I've done all these wonderful things. God, are you not now obligated to me? The question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? expresses, my brothers and sisters, entitlement, it expresses privilege, and it expresses pride. I'm reminded of another person who came to Jesus back in Luke 18. We know him as the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler asked Jesus, good master, what shall I do to inherit 
eternal life? The very same question to which Jesus gave the very same response. What does the book of the law say? Now, of course, the rich young ruler, in his own arrogance, responded, I've done all those things ever since my youth. Jesus says, well, only one thing you lack. Sell everything that you've got and come follow me. And the Bible tells us at this, the rich young ruler went away disappointed and sad because why? He had much possessions. Now, I do not want you to miss this because it will form the foundational basis for this message that I'm preaching. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is a question not only of entitlement and privilege, but it is egregiously self-righteous and proud and tells me that there are some people in our society who believe that because they may have a little knowledge or because they may have a little bit of money, they believe that their knowledge and their money grants them certain inalienable rights and privileges that's not available to everyday folk like you and me. <laughs> Even rights and privilege that they believe they alone inherited from God himself. But if my Bible serves me correctly, God is no respecter of person. But going back to the lawyer, at the point where Jesus asked him about what is written in the book of the law, the lawyer quotes the summary of the Decalogue. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now notice here that Jesus did not tell him to go and sell all the possessions he had and give to the poor. No, Jesus said to him, go and keep the law. Knowing fully well, Jesus knew fully well that he could not keep all the law. For if you break only one out of all those laws, you are guilty of breaking the entirety of the law. So it was an impossible thing that Jesus told him to do. Go and keep the law, all the law. If you are Jewish, all 613 laws. Go keep all the laws you want. And Jesus knew that this was an impossibility, but that did not stop this lawyer. Why? Because the truth of the matter is, the lawyer probably believed in his self-righteous, arrogant, entitled, privileged heart, believed that, oh, I've already done all of that. I can keep all the law. So because of that, he now decides, oh, because I've done all the law, let me push Jesus a little further. Jesus, teacher, so-called teacher, who is my neighbor? Now, now let me stop here for a moment because I want you to understand that being a lawyer in biblical Palestine, and as I previously shared, assumes that this lawyer is self-righteous, that, that he's high-minded, that he's probably well-trained and, and well-educated. He knew the law and probably was also very respected by everyone in his community. He knew the law so well, and the truth is his issue was not necessarily tied to his material wealth. It was tied to his, his high-mindedness, and he probably used this to lord it over people that he felt was beneath him. I want you to see the lawyer. He is the one that, you know, he's on TV. You see this lawyer. He is the top of the top lawyer. You can't question his knowledge because he knows all things. He is high-minded. Now, now, for some of us, black, white, green, yellow, pink, whatever you want, because we may have learned something in school, or maybe we've had some past experiences, we believe that it gives us or that we have earned the right to be an authority on any particular subject and talk down 
to other people. Oh, yes, we do. In other words, this lawyer had what we call white privilege. This lawyer had white privilege. You see, white privilege is literally an unseen, often unconscious, socioeconomic and cultural advantage that affords to one group of people benefits that are denied to others based solely on their race, their ethnicity, origin, or similar characteristic. It exists to influence systems, organizations such as governments, corporations, and institutions of higher learning. According to Corey Collins in a 2018 edition of Teaching Tolerance magazine, I want you to hear this. He says, the word white creates discomfort among those who are not used to being defined or described by their race. And the word privilege, especially for poor and rural white people, sounds like a word that doesn't belong to them, like a word that suggests they have never struggled. Corey goes on to say that white privilege is not the suggestion that white people have never struggled. Many white people do not enjoy the privileges that come with affluence or, or food security or even being able to live near a hospital. And, and, and white privilege is not the assumption that everything a white person has accomplished is unearned. Most white people who have reached high level of success worked extremely hard to get there. Instead, white privilege should be viewed as a built-in advantage separate from one's level of income or effort. Now, did y'all hear that? Now, even though all of that is true, it does not stop poor white people from thinking that they have an entitlement over people that do not look like them. In fact, here's a quote from Lyndon B. Johnson, the 36th president of the United States. This is what he says, and I quote, if you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, his words, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. That's the president of the United States, the 36th president of the United States. So when we talk about white privilege, it is a cultural phenomenon that is harbored by people who believe both consciously and subconsciously that they have an entitlement that guarantees them an inheritance from God based solely on the color of their skin. And to quote Pastor Miles McPherson in an interview he did on CNN just this past week with Anderson Cooper, he, he said, and I like the quote, he said, the tan you get in the sun, you celebrate. But the tan you get from the womb, you invalidate. <laughs> That's white privilege. So, so teacher, what can I do? What, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But who is my neighbor? The question, who is my neighbor, was a test to see if Jesus would tell him that his neighbor was his own Jewish brothers and especially those that he believed kept the law just like himself. So, so the question, who is my neighbor, is the same question that is being asked of America today. Are immigrants coming to the United States our neighbors or only those who speak English? 
our people fleeing economic oppression, our neighbors are only those coming from Norway. Our Mexicans, Indonesians, Hispanics, Africans, Koreans, Swedes, Italians, Vietnamese, Jews, Christians, Muslims, black people, white people, you name it, are these people our neighbors? The problem with the question, however, and especially when we consider it very deeply, is that there's a sense that you and I have the right to declare who can be our neighbors. The privilege in the question shows that you and I, with our subjective, racially biased views, our self-righteousness, and our judgmental natures, think that we have an authority to declare who will be our neighbor. You and I think for whatever reason that we have a right to determine who should be the man next door living among us. To declare white privilege is an entitlement system and it's not only a white people phenomenon. Oh yes, the difference is that it's mostly white people that have power. For let, a, let the wrong person move next door to you in a well-to-do black neighborhood or in a predominantly middle or upper class neighborhood, no matter the race, see how quickly white privilege manifests itself. The privilege is a heart condition so when the lawyer challenged Jesus, he was actually expressing his Jewish white privilege, if you follow what I'm saying. This is why Jesus responded the way that he did and told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, now the parable of the Good Samaritan, in a nutshell, is that a man was on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves and he was beaten and left for half dead. You know the story, left for half dead in the street. A priest came by, saw him, and proceeded to walk on the other side. Then a Levite came by, saw him, and what did the same? Walk on the other side. But a Samaritan came by and saw him, had compassion on him, bandaged up his wounds, placed him on his own beast, took him to an inn, and paid the innkeeper to take care of all the expenses that was required to make the man whole. Jesus then asked the lawyer, which one of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was the man's neighbor? To which the lawyer rightly answered, it was the Samaritan. Now, church, we read these texts so much that we think we know them so well, but we need to really pay attention sometimes to the details. Now, I don't have time to go through all the nuances of the spiritual meaning behind the parable. So I will only focus on why I believe Jesus told the lawyer this parable in the way that he did. Watch this. The only way that the lawyer would be able to respond to the meaning of the parable and to answer Jesus' question correctly is if and only if he thought of himself as being the man lying on the side of the road half dead. If he considered that it was himself, he would, have had a, he would have had an expectation that as a well-learned and a entitled scholar, schooled in all the ways of Jewish rabbinical law, if he was lying on the side of the road half dead, of course the priest would not pass him by. Of course a Levite would not pass him by, since in fact there is own kind. But the fact that they did meant that they could not 
possibly have been his neighbors. You see, while he knew that they may care that he had gone to Harvard or Princeton, you see, while he knew that they may care that he had gone to Columbia or NYU, you see, while he knew that they may care that he was a Rockefeller or a Carnegie, and you see, while he knew that they may care that he was either Prince William or Prince Harry, he knew that they did not care about his humanity and they would have left him there. That is why he answered correctly that the Samaritan was his neighbor. You see, the lawyer had to empathize with the man lying in the street. And because he was able to see himself in that man and knew that he would not want to be left there in that state, it appealed to his sense of morality and his humanity. That is how you defeat white privilege and how you turn it on its head. It is a willingness for white people to understand before trying to be understood. It is a willingness for white people to look beyond their own experiences and empathize, not sympathize. It is the willingness for white people to listen to what people are telling them about themselves and their needs and for you to respect those needs as being Holy. It is the willingness for white people to realize that you can't fix yourself, neither can you fix anyone else. It's the willingness for white people to humble themselves before God. Now keep in mind that we're told that the man was robbed as he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which meant that he was a Jew, a person that the Samaritan could have easily ignored, yet he was already ignored by his own kind, his own people, a priest and a Levite, who he thinks should help him as he was lying there on the street, can't breathe. For black people who have been dealing with this prejudice for years, we've been hurting, and now we are injured. And I like in the words of baseball player Derek Jeter, he says, we can play hurt. We can play the game hurt, but we can't play injured. So the point of the whole parable is that what connects us and all of us is not our race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. It's our common humanity. It is a willingness to cross boundaries of culture, tradition, family, and nations of origins in an effort to make the life of someone else easier to bear. It is a willingness to risk all of your own comforts and privileges to ease the burden of someone else, especially when you don't have to and don't want to. The willingness to sit in the midst of someone else's struggle for a little while, even if you can't imagine what they're experiencing, is the greatest expression of your humanity. We see this nestled right in the middle of the story of the Good Samaritan, the part where it says, when he saw him, when he saw him, when he saw he couldn't breathe, when he saw he couldn't move, the text says he took pity and had compassion on him. This is why we're witnessing today all of the various ethnic groups, especially white people, marching along us, chanting Black Lives Matter. And why it is so important? Because somehow they have finally decided to see themselves as George 
Floyd, Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and many others. Even the video of the cops shoving that 75-year-old white man to the ground was a display of a man actually risking his own white privilege to confront police brutality, which almost cost him his life. His white privilege got him shoved and not shot. Let's be clear. It got him shoved and not shot. But that same white privilege made the police union in Buffalo force dozens of those cops to resign from the unit in protest to the disciplinary action against the two cops that had pushed that man. Silence, especially white silence in the face of police brutality has been in a way much more troubling than the racism that we have seen and that exists for so long within our many police forces. Sure, sure, we, we know that there are some that try to be good cops. And notice I didn't say most. Some that try to be good cops. But to deny our testimony of what we know to be true in reality is another way of showing the priest and the Levite walking past us on the side of the road. So the question is not, who is my neighbor? That's not the question I'm posing to America today. Not who is my neighbor. The question is, am I your neighbor? Am I your neighbor? That's my question to America as an African-American pastor in the pulpit. Not who is my neighbor, because you're going to say everybody. But am I your neighbor? Look at me. See me. Have compassion on me for the atrocities that has been done. Am I your neighbor? And here comes the, here's where the rubber meets the road. If you answered that I am your neighbor and mean it, can I be the man next door? Can I be the man next door? For the truth is, because of this thing called sin, you and I were the ones that were on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Black, white, green, yellow, pink. Because of sin, we were the ones lying on the side of the road. And the robber that came and left us half dead was Satan himself, the enemy of all of our souls. Now God sent us a priest, but he couldn't help us. God sent us a Levite, but he couldn't help us. So God himself felt compassion on us, lying on the side of the road. And he came down from his majesty in heaven, and he soothed our wounds in the form of Jesus Christ. He put us on his own beast, which we know to be the cross. And he took us to the inn, which we call today the church of God. And he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care until I come again. Take care of these, my few, until I come again. This is who we were, broken and bleeding, left nearly half dead on the side of the road. And the Savior, who is the good Samaritan in the story, he came and he rescued you and he came and he rescued me. What then is our responsibility? Who are you in the story? Who are you looking down on? Because if you're looking down on people and you can't empathize with them, you can't walk alongside them in their struggle, the truth of the matter is then you are a priest and you are a Levite and you have no place. No place. 
in my father's house. Why? Why? Because the scriptures tell me that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All nations, black, white, green, yellow, pink, indigo, and violet, will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me to live next door. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. For 400 years I was lying in the street unable to breathe and you heard me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? When did we see that you couldn't breathe and we heard you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, George, Ahmad, Trayvon, Philando, Brianna, whatever you did for the least of one of these, my brothers and my sisters, you did for me. Jesus is the man next door in this message, and he wants to be your neighbor today. Can he, can he move in with you? May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.